being the good Anglican girl that I am, I like the creed. I've always liked the creed. I've found it a good moment in a time of worship to reassure me, to remind me what it is I believe, to give me a sort of anchor in the world. And the way I've said these creeds over the years is different depending on the day and the time and how I'm feeling in my faith. Sometimes I've said this creed, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And I've said that sort of defiantly, confidently, rooting myself in an understanding of the world that might be different to other understandings around me. I believe that God made this world and no one else. Sometimes I have said it proudly, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, someone who could create so much wonder, what an awesome, powerful God he is. Sometimes I've said it with real tenderness and love, God, the maker of heaven and earth, who creates such beauty, such delight, who stirs my soul with what he has made. But this morning, I say it with frailty, because I don't want to say it bullishly in the face of an earthquake. If we're thinking about how to put words around the mystery of Jesus Christ in our life to others, how to explain what it means to say, God is maker of heaven and earth, I don't want to be dismissive about destruction. I don't want to be light-hearted about it or find tidy answers and easy explanations for why this beautiful, amazing world also has the capacity to destroy, to maim, to take life. I don't want to enter into that lightly. So today I want to invite us to say the words, we believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, prayerfully, as a prayer with all the mystery that those words contain, with all that is yet to be understood, with all that is hard to grasp in those words. Maker of heaven and earth. And while I don't have good, pithy, apologetic answers to say in the pub about why these things happen, why I can't tidy this up for myself or for anybody else, I do know some things about creation that I see here in this scripture and I've known in my life. This much I know. And I want to look at the text in this way, prayerfully allowing Genesis 1 to be a reminder of love, an encouragement, a comfort, a grace in the mystery of tragedy. Here's the first thing that I see then in the text. This much I know, that the world was created out of love. That creation is a gift of grace and wonder and generosity. I was telling the 9am congregation that my life is sort of a patchwork, a history littered with failed attempts to read the Bible in a year. I have used every app or reading plan. I bought the special Bible that helps you do it. I have reminders on my phone that I have consistently ignored for days upon days. I have not managed to use an app to take me through that way. But I have consequently read Genesis 1 over and over and over again. 
And because I've read it over and over again, I find it very familiar. I could almost say it from rote, from heart, by heart. I could skip over it. I could ignore it. I suspect that lots of people who've never read the Bible know something of Genesis 1. And the danger with familiarity, of course, is that we miss the wonder. The danger of familiarity is that we lose the context and it fails to speak powerfully to us as it did when it first came into existence, when that story was first told to the people. The thing about Genesis is the language is profoundly theological, not scientific, but poetic. The description of the heavens of a dome carries this meaning of metal, almost like a metal dome that covers the earth. We're not meant to read this text as though it scientifically explains everything about the way the world was made. We're meant to read it as if it is to invite us in to seeing who God is and how he lives and how he loves. And it's not unique, Genesis, as a creation story of its time and of its era. There are many other creation stories that bear close similarities. If we were to study other Near Eastern stories about the creation, we would recognize things in them. We would think, that's similar, I've heard that before. But there are distinct differences too. And this is what's really important and transformative. This is where the message of love lies in this text. Other Near Eastern creation stories tell a story of multiple gods, of gods who were at war with one another, gods who were egotistical and capricious, and creation formed out of their violence and their inner fights and struggles. And out of that creation, human beings are kind of helpful slaves to appease the gods. They're involved in the fight and the violence. And if they're not a slave, then they are at the very least a pawn in the game. That's all human beings are, of little intrinsic worth or value. Or sometimes those creation stories are of this battle between good and evil, of a kind of primordial evil creature, and the gods slay that evil creature, and out of that death comes the creation of the world. There is this ongoing battle for good and evil rooted in creation. Which is why Genesis is so incredibly different. Because it is one God creating, not many and not creating out of violence or out of a desire to win a battle, not creating out of ego, not out of capriciousness, but out of sheer love. There is no reason for God to create. He doesn't need to do it. The void is not troubling to him. There is nothing to overcome. There is no reason to create other than out of generosity and beauty and grace and love. And human beings in this story of creation aren't slaves. They're not there as pawns to appease a God who could be angry, but people with their own intrinsic worth and value, with meaning and purpose. And there isn't this primordial battle between good and evil. There is goodness in God, all good. good God is all goodness. What we see then in this text and what we hear this morning is that creation, the very foundations, God who made the world, made it out of love and it is grace and gift and goodness. That does not answer the question of why earthquakes or why hurricanes or why volcanoes. 
But what it says to me is, when those things will happen anyway, it brings me profound comfort and hope to know that this creation is rooted not in chaos, not in meaninglessness, not in violence or destruction, but in love. And love is the story that drives the existence of the world. It gives me hope for the future. It gives me hope of redemption. Love is at our very core. This much I know. God created the world out of love. The poetry of Genesis is beautiful. And you hear it a little bit. I'm sorry you couldn't read the whole thing. But you hear those rhythms of the language designed to draw you into that story, the way the world is made. God saw it and he saw that it was good. What we get as we read on, as we read the whole picture of creation, is a profound sense of the interconnectedness of everything. Humans aren't created as separate beings in a separate account, but part of the culmination and the fullness of creation. They are part of the community of creation. There is this incredible sense that everything is held together in the love of God, not done in separate parts. What you hear through the text, through the Bible, is that the world, the earth, matter, creation, stuff, is good, is profoundly good from its very beginning. Which is interesting, because although we might say, well, yes, of course, I know it's good, creation is good, I like creation, I enjoy a mountain, I like a sunset, I'm happy at the sea, what we notice if we look at history or we look at our life is a creeping uncertainty about the goodness of the world or the goodness of matter. Something which weaves into our lives from a long time ago. The reason that the creeds that we are working our way through were written was because there was uncertainty about the goodness of creation. One of the things that happened is that Gnostic thought, which is a thought that sort of says that spirit is the important thing and matter is evil, spirit is good. This is a terrible summary. I hope none of my doctrine lectures listen to this. But that there is a kind of dualism in the world, a disconnect between spirit and matter, and it's spirit that's important, and matter is fallen and broken. Therefore, God, who is perfect and good, couldn't have created the world because the world is fallen and broken and subject to decay. So spirit and God, by matter and the earth, they have to be separate, separated in some way. The creed, in complicated ways, I tried to explain this morning and I found myself utterly baffled by my own explanation. So what I'm going to say to you is this alone, that the creed in some way is a profound affirmation not of the separation of God and the world, but of its utter inextricable links of its goodness, of its deep goodness. Again, we might say, well, that's obvious, except that even today we see ongoing disconnections between us and the world, between earth and God, between faith and care of creation. You might see it in its extreme form in Christians um, who believe that in order to bring the second coming of Jesus, the world must be annihilated. So they are happily engaged in sort of accelerating the destruction of the world through environmental decay in order to bring Jesus back and there to be this sort of spiritual fulfillment. What morons, we say. Idiots. How could they think that? 
But if I go a little bit closer to home, there's disconnects for me too. Notice how sometimes those people who have this concern for the environment or concern for the planet are boxed a little bit, put into a category. They're very green, we'll say of them. They're a bit of an eco-warrior. When you've taken an easy jet flight, you avoid them, you don't want to see them, you think, oh gosh, they'll just make me feel bad and guilty. What we gradually do is we place care for the earth and the planet in this box over here. And we say, this is a kind of niche interest. And some people will be concerned about it. And other people, that's just not on their heart. That's not their calling. In my own life and experience, I would say that I have had a conversion. I don't know any other way to say it. About three or four years ago, if you were to look at me, you would think that I was sort of averagely indifferent to the earth, I think is how you would say it. I was a moderately good recycler. I believed in climate change, but I was keen not to know too much about it as anything I heard about it terrified me. I was happy to know that other people were concerned about it and doing things about it. But I kind of wanted to remain a good, concerned person, clicking the right emails and sending the right petitions. But actually, nothing really in my spirit was engaged with that subject. I cannot tell you what happened other than that God met me. God has met me and changed and challenged and transformed me in a way I wasn't anticipating or expecting. So much so that like a conversion experience that some people describe, I would wake up in the night. I would wake up in the night with some persistent call of God. I found that I couldn't stop thinking about it, that conversations would keep drawing me towards it, that people would come in my way and tell me things about what was happening to our earth, what we could do about it, what the call was. And instead of where normally I would look away, I suddenly couldn't look away. Life was changing and it's been an ongoing process. I don't have this total revelation, but... Things are beginning to change for me. One of the key things that happened was that a friend, Byron, who many of you may know, said to me this. He said, imagine this, Vanessa, that my parents have built a house in which I've grown up and I've lived. Imagine if later then I were to come back and ransack that house for my own profit and benefit. Not only would it not be a kind or good thing to do, but it would say something very broken about my relationship with my parents. Do I care about them so little that that's what I do? Do I love them so little? And that image, that illustration, spoke really powerfully to me as an invitation into worship. What's been happening to me is that not that I've suddenly thought, I must recycle everything and I must sell my car and never fly. It's begun at the roots of worship of God. To love God is to love his creation, to love the house he built. To worship God is to know the beauty and the preciousness of that and to understand that these things are indivisible. It's not a niche thing. It's not disconnected. It's not over there for someone else. It's for me. It's for each one of us. I see in our notice sheet a meeting about eco-bishops and green Anglicans. All bishops are eco-bishops. All Anglicans are green Anglicans because we love God. 
We love the earth. There's no other way around it. This much I know. Creation was made out of love. And to worship God and to love him is to love that back, is to reciprocate love. We believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. To say that is not to say a historical statement. It's not to say, I believe in God, he made the world a long time ago and then he left us to get on with it. He left us to just work it out. It's to say that I believe that God is on continually involved in creation. He's still present and active. He's still creating. New things are being brought to life. But he's also redeeming what is broken. And what is so amazing is that we are invited to be part of that. We are invited to be part of that redemption of creation. Often I find that the reason I don't want to engage with anything to do with climate change or ecological crisis or the environment is, well, two reasons. One is that I'm petrified. I have never been good with an apocalyptic film. I never want to watch The Day After Tomorrow. I am petrified of the end of the world, and I'm petrified of reading about cataclysmic, catastrophic events. This, I think, is normal. Those of us who relish this probably need to examine ourselves. Nonetheless, fear cannot drive us. Because in the end, what happens with fear is either that we cannot live with it any longer because it's overwhelming and we shut down, or that we make poor, undiscerning choices because we're so concerned for our own survival. We don't do the right thing because we're so afraid. The other thing that drives me is shame and guilt. I think, look at what we've done. Look at how we've destroyed this place. Look at the destruction. Look at the chaos that's coming. Look at the crisis that looms on the horizon. And I feel so overwhelmed with shame and guilt. And that might drive me for a while. But in the end, I'm miserable and fed up with feeling ashamed and guilty. And I want to forget all about it. It won't sustain me. It doesn't have enough life or energy in it. What we see in Genesis 1 is a life-giving love that is energy and hope for the world. We engage in this process of redemption and renewal, not out of fear and not out of shame, but out of love. Jane Williams, the theologian, reflects on the book of Genesis very beautifully. If you ever get a chance to read anything she writes about it, I really commend her to you. And she describes this process of when the first people read the book of Genesis. So the stories of Genesis are around for centuries and centuries told in oral culture and tradition. But they really begin to come together and be formed into a text in the time when the Jews are in exile in Babylon. So when they have lost their anchor, they've lost their center, they're away from their places of worship. They are marooned, desperate for signs of God. And in them, the sign of hope is the story of Genesis. Because what they recover in the story of Genesis, what they find is of a God who creates out of freedom and of joy, and who maintains a relationship with his people, she says, no matter how many times they betray him or let him down. He keeps going. And what they discover when they look at the book of Genesis is their calling, their unique vocation, to be signs and reminders of what it means to be fully human 
It means to live in creation with God and to work with him to steward it. And they find, when they look at Genesis, that God's not there for our use, not there to sort of help us when we need him, but we are called to be sacred images of God on earth. That's how we are created, in the image of God, and to be that image in our relationships with one another. That's not an invitation of fear. That's not an invitation of shame or guilt. This is an invitation of love. And the thing about Christian love, based on following Jesus Christ, is this is a love that says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. There is no love greater than this but to lay down your life for your friend. This is an innately self-giving, sacrificial, joyful love, which is important. Because what lies ahead of us requires courage and tenacity. It requires a belief and a faith and a hope. But love will sustain us. Love will give us strength. Love will guide us. We are invited into the ongoing redemption of the earth because we are loved, because we love, because we love our neighbor as we love ourselves. May you be encouraged then, not glibly, not lightly, but when you look at the news, to know that though we may not know much and we may not understand, we can hold these things in hope and faith that God created the world out of love. That to worship God is to love the world. There's no separation between these things. There are no green Christians, only Christians. And that we are not asked to step back and let the world unravel, but to participate in the ongoing redemption and creation of the world in partnership with God. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Amen.